Uh, turn to the back of your bulletin. This, uh, normally I highlight things, but today I have a complaint. Why is it almost all women's ministry? What's with that? <laughs> Man, the women really have a lot of things going on. It's pretty amazing. Look at all that stuff. So read that during the sermon, and you'll find out what's going on around the church. Um, but for, for those of you that are guys, males, men, uh, I do want to let you know, in case you forget, that we have r r on Wednesday mornings. Unless you're from Texas and it's r r now, we learned that. I'm not from Texas. I just heard somebody say that. So uh, we get together at 6.30, and we have a breakfast and a discussion. It's not a Bible teaching. It's a discussion. We're actually having a great time. We're, we are uh, really working through developing how to think about several areas. We're just coming to the end of studying, for example, what God says about wealth, riches, poverty, and all of that. And so um, we're really formulating some, just some good thinking among the guys about different areas. So if you're a guy, 6.30, breakfast is included. Uh, and uh, so come, you'll enjoy it. Okay, today I would like to stop and pray for, as I've been mentioning the last three or four weeks, uh, the Herrings, um, Ron, uh, Ron and Nancy Herring, I mean Roy and Nancy Herring, and um, the Cummins, Rodney and Angela. Uh, both men have cancer. Um, in Roy's case, the uh, chemo is working, so he's rejoicing, and we're grateful for that. He has stage one lung cancer, and uh, the chemo is working, so we can praise God for that. In Rodney's case, he has stage four colon cancer. The chemo is not working, so uh, barring the Lord's intervention, his days are numbered. Uh, I get down every week and spend time with them. They're, they're in Denver now. He can't come back up. And um, in fact, we're going to leave after church and go spend time with them today. So uh, they're, they're facing a really tough battle. So let's just stop as a congregation and lift them up and pray for them. Father, I pray uh, for both these families, but first I'd like to say thank you for, for being a God who found us, a God who pursued us and came after us, a God who redeemed us and saved us, a God who we can in turn trust because you are alive, you are real, and we believe in you. We have confidence in you. Thank you, God, that although we don't understand your ways, we do have confidence that you know the best way. Father, I'd like to praise you for the Herring family. Thank you for um, <clears throat> that the chemo is working, for, for extending his life and treating the cancer. Lord, I pray for the Cummins family. Lord, as he fights for his very life, Lord, and the days are numbered unless you intervene, we ask, Father, on his behalf that you would intervene and extend his life as well. So be with them, continue to show them grace and mercy, and help us as a church to do the same. Thank you, Father. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, today we start a new series. It's kind of our continuing on through where we've come. We Remember we did uh, Miraculous Births and we did Advent, and we're leading you on a journey. Today we're going to spend, we're going to start talking about the Jewish festivals, and we're going to spend the next six weeks, uh, counting this week, looking at the Jewish festivals. Um, with each of these uh, series that we do, I try to give our staff uh, one series a year to plan, just to get them the experience. So, for example, during Christmas when we did all the children's stuff and all the things that were up here, I had nothing to do with that. That was all Annika and Val. They put all that together. My job is to come up here and tell, tell you what they tell me to tell you, okay? So uh, the series before that, Mark did it. This is Stephen Sealing. He did this series on Jewish festivals. And 
So we're going to take a look at the Jewish festivals. And the way we do our series is we sit down and talk. We're, we're planning several months out. And we're thinking and praying about you and where do we want to go and help you learn more about God and his word that would draw you closer to him. That's kind of our goal. And then once we figured out, kind of framed it out, then we sit down and come up with goals, goals to help us kind of shape what we're going to say. So one of the goals, for example, is with this series to show you how Jesus fulfills all the Jewish festivals. One of the questions that we get regularly is why don't we honor the Jewish festivals? Okay. Why did the early church choose not to do that? And uh, they did not continue the festivals. Well, we want to show you how Jesus fulfills those festivals, and then he redefines them so that they impact us to help us understand what true spiritual reality looks like. You see, we have an interesting challenge. Um, or I should say God has an interesting challenge. We live in a world with three dimensions and five senses. That's the way we're created. And yet God calls us to fight a battle and to exist, coexist in a world that's outside of those three dimensions and those five, uh, sen- uh, those five senses. So Paul, for example, can say in Ephesians that right now we're seated at the right hand of Christ. How is that? I think I'm here with you, but somehow I'm sitting at the right hand of Christ. So we live in two worlds at the same time. One of them we grasp. We can touch it and smell it and all that. And the other one, we, we don't do very well at grasping it. What does it look like if we could take off our lenses and put on spiritual lenses? I have a feeling this would look very different than we imagine it. And so the way God has chosen to do it, as I understand it, through the Bible, is fantastic. He, he has the Old Testament. Sometimes I picture the Old Testament as almost like a, a children's picture book. It's, it's got color. It's, you, can, you can touch the stones of the temple. You can hear the animals, the sheep bleeding. You can smell the animals as they're sacrificed. All of those things which we don't have in our world today. And then you have Jesus who comes and fulfills all of this because everything back here is pointing toward Christ. It's preparing us for what Christ's going to do on our behalf. Christ comes and does it, completes all that, and then turns right around and all of this language reappears in the New Testament. So back here we have priesthood. Over here, we're believer priests. Back here we have sacrifices. Over here, we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Back here, we have the Jewish temple. Up here, we're called a spiritual temple. And so all that language reappears in our world. And the only way to grasp what this other world, this other dimension looks like is by going back into the Old Testament and making sense of these events. Does that make sense to you? Okay, so what Jesus does is absolutely critical because he fulfills all of that and then redefines it for us today. Well, the Jewish festivals are no different. All the Jewish festivals, and there's quite a number of them, we're not going to look at all of them, they, they teach us something about God and his relationship with his people. Then you come to Christ, Christ fulfills each of them, and then they carry forward into the church today, not in the form of a holiday, but in the form of a lifestyle, in the way we relate to each other. So the Jewish festivals are very much a part of our culture you just don't realize it. And so as we take you through the next six weeks, we're going to take these festivals and help you see what Jesus did and how it impacts us as a church. It's very important. So today we're actually going to look at Hanukkah. But first, some background and some history, because you have to understand these festivals. These are the festivals that we are going to uh, take a look at and examine. It's not all of them. We're going to look at four of them that come out of the Torah. The word Torah is the word for law. 
and it usually refers to the Mosaic laws captured in the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch. So the Torah, the uh, law of Moses, required four specifically that we're going to look at. The first three are important. Passover, the festival of Passover, festival of tabernacles or booths, and festival of Pentecost. These are the pilgrimage festivals. And by that, I mean God had had exiled and sent the nation out and deported them all around the world because of their sin and rebellion in the prophets. We hear that we read about that in the prophets. So then when they began to uh, come back together, they had to come together three times a year and gather in Jerusalem. Well, by now, it's several hundred years have gone by and their families are all settled around the world. So the Jews are required to gather three times a year for these great festivals in Jerusalem. Those are called the pilgrimage festivals. So that's Passover, Tabernacles, and Pentecost. We're also going to look at the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, because that's very important in Christian theology. So that's the fourth festival that's required by the uh, Mosaic Law, the Torah. We're also going to look at a holy day called Sabbath, which occurs every week. We're going to take a look at that because we get asked the question, why don't we practice Sabbath today? Well, we actually do. We're going to talk about how. And then we're going to look at one. Um, there were several that sprang up during what we call the second temple period. Okay, you have the first temple, which is Solomon's temple. Uh, he dedicated in 1 Kings 7 and 8. And uh, great temple, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. In fact, the glory of the Lord filled the temple so much, the priest couldn't even get in the temple. They had to stand outside. It was so powerful. And then the nation began to rebel, turn away from God, and walk away. And the result of that is that around 530 B.C., finally the southern kingdom, which was the last kingdom, God dispersed them. The northern kingdom, the ten tribes, disappeared completely. The southern kingdom, the two tribes around Jerusalem, they didn't disappear. They just got kicked out. And they were deported around the world. The temple was destroyed. That's the end of the first temple. Then you have Ezra and Nehemiah coming back, and they built the second temple. Hence, we have the second temple period. Theologians are very creative. It's kind of like the Ten Mountain Range. We have the peak one. What's the second peak called? I have no idea why. And then you have peak three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That's creative. I just got to say, I mean, theologians are a lot like that. We have the second temple period, which is about from 530 B.C. So you have way back here, you have Solomon and David, the building of the temple, and you have God's glory filling the temple. And then Solomon dies, and the kings immediately begin to lead the people astray. And you begin this long spiral down down, down, down. That's what the prophets record until God finally ends the northern kingdom and then he finally deports the southern kingdom and then the Old Testament stops. Okay? Right at the end of that period, you have Ezra and Nehemiah coming back into the land and building a second temple. That's why we call it the second temple. So from 530, and then you move forward till the time of Christ. So Christ lived, and you have the cross around... 30 to 37 A.D. And then in 70 A.D., you have Emperor Ti uh, General Titus coming. He became emperor right after that and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. So the second temple period ends when the temple is destroyed. So it begins back here when the temple is, second temple is built, and it ends down here when the temple is destroyed in 70 A.D. You with me so far? Okay, just a little bit of historical background to, so I can put these things in it. During this second temple period, 
Several festivals and holidays were created by the Jews, which were not commanded in the Bible. We're going to look at one of them today, Hanukkah. Well, the reason why we're going to look at that one is because that was referenced in John, as we'll see in a moment. So Jesus lived within the context of all these festivals. Some required by the Bible, the Mosaic Law, and some, re- some they developed for other reasons, like us. We have the 4th of July, okay? And so uh, we celebrate that as a nation. These festivals were very important in the life of Israel for several reasons. One is they provided opportunities for the nation to celebrate and remember where they had come. Their history as a people was captured by these festivals, much like ours. Can you imagine us being a country without having the 4th of July? It's kind of weird. We have Thanksgiving, we have Christmas, Easter, 4th of July, Columbus Day, President's Day. We have all these things, and they they create a sense of identity, if you will, and common value, which is the second uh, second purpose is they provide identity for the nation. Thirdly, they provided for a sense of national aspirations. They gave pictures of hope. All right, that's we do the same, don't we? Doesn't the Fourth of July remember our past, but also continue our commitment to liberty and freedom? It gives us a sense of hope. We don't want to be an occupied nation, do we? And so that that annual remembrance just drives home how important this value is to us. And then finally, they provided opportunities for the nation to discuss issues and make national resolutions, decisions on what to do. I mean, we have the Internet, the media, the press, and we have this. And so decision-making in our country is kind of real-time. It's just happening. We have popular opinion polls. You could take samples and surveys, statistical surveys, and know what the people think. Well, they didn't have that back then. So they would gather three times a year for these pilgrimages, and they would talk about things, and they would make decisions. So... Today we're going to start with Hanukkah, which began during the Second Temple period. The Second Temple period, which began around 530, when they destroyed the First Temple and started to rebuild the Second One when they were in the land, all the way to 70 A.D., when they destroyed the Second Temple. So it's a, it's about a 600-year period of time. A lot happened during this period of time. From a Bible's perspective, it's largely silent until Christ came. Okay, and you have the Gospels and all of that. There are three things that shape this period of time which influence the life of Christ and the nation by the time Christ comes on the scene. One is, I've already mentioned, in 587, the southern kingdom was uh, dispersed and the destruction of the temple, 587, 586 B.C., and they were all deported to Babylon, mostly to Babylon, scattered around the world. The second thing was the uh, attempted Hellenization of Judaism. The Greek culture brought in Hellenization, uh, named after Helen. <laughs> and, um, and so they began to br- bring Greek philosophy. You have the great Greek philosophers occurring after the end of the Old Testament is written. So Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. And all of that began to reshape the way we think about things in the world. There's no way that we can overstate how impactful Plato was in reshaping the world. You have been shaped by Plato and Aristotle more than any other philosopher in the world, not only in your national thinking as an American, but in your Christian thinking. And one day we'll have a talk about that as well. So this all happened during this period of time. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. The third thing is the Romans occupied the lands of Palestine and conquered Jerusalem in 63 B.C., so just Within 100 years of the birth of Christ, you had the Romans occupying the land. They beat the Greeks, and, and uh, the strong one wins, and they took over, and the world changed. All right, short statement on the history of Hanukkah. 
In 175 BC, so that's 175 years before Christ, okay, you have a man by the name of Antiochus IV. He became a, the ruler of Syria, Antiochus IV. He took on the name Epiphanes, so he became known in history as Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus IV. And all that means is he was the manifest or the revealing of God. He called himself God. Well, it's very common in the ancient world. Every, whoever was in charge, I'm the strongest guy, so I must be the God on the earth, one of the gods on the earth. Every Roman uh, Caesar thought that, and so he called himself God. So he began to control Israel because uh, they don't like it when you take over a people group and the people group are rebellious. The, the conquering nation doesn't like those kinds of things. So they would automatically begin to put in factors and controls to control the people group that they've subdued. Some of them would disperse the people because if you disperse them, then you know what? They're not going to have any chance to rebel. Others would bring local governors in. So every nation did it differently. What he did was he deposed the rightful priest that was controlled by the law of Moses. He deposed him and he sold the priesthood to someone he could control. So the priesthood became corrupted and controlled. It became a state institution. Well, the Jews weren't very happy about that, rightfully so. They were a little peeved. And that started to create a little bit of unrest. Next, he decreed that all the Jews would worship Zeus as their god. We're done with Yahweh, kick him out. We bring in Zeus now. So Zeus is now the god, and the Jewish people were even a little more peeved, a little more upset. This led to, started to uh, result in opposition, uh, which brought about persecution, death, struggle, all of that within the lands of Palestine. In 167, so he became the leader in 175, 175 years before Christ. So in 167, he marched into the temple, which was God's temple, the one true God. He marched into the temple, and he built an altar and made a sacrifice to Zeus in the middle of the temple, which defiled the temple. It's now unclean. They can't use it anymore. That's his way of showing the people, I'm in charge, and we have a different God. It's a new day. Get used to it. They didn't get used to it. So, one of the priests, Mattathias, led a revolt in 167. Okay, so 167. Three years later in 164, his son, Judas Maccabeus, defeated the Syrian forces. He did it. He gathered enough support to chase the Syrians out of their land. So they went in, they purified the temple, they cleansed it from the defilement of Antiochus Epiphanes, they tore down the altar he had built, they rebuilt another one, they rebuilt the temple and refurbished it, they set up lamps to illuminate the sacred ground, marking the restoration of the temple and its system. Now, legend has it that they found a one little vial of oil that had been consecrated and it lasted them the whole time they were doing it. That's only legend. We have no historical accuracy to demonstrate that. But that's the way the festival is celebrated. This is the festival of Hanukkah, celebrating um, the Maccabean revolt, the, the reclaiming the temple, cleansing and purifying it, and restoring it. And then they set up the lights, so it became also known as the festival of lights. They set up the lights to symbolize the glory of the Lord. You see, the glory of the Lord was there when Solomon dedicated the temple way back, way back here. But then when the nation sinned, the glory of the Lord left the temple and it never came back. So along about here, they built the second temple. But guess what? 
Lights on, nobody's home. God never came back. And the Jews were aware of that. So they set up these lights, hence the festival of lights, to symbolize the Lord's return. Because they believed one day that the Lord would return and he would bring all the Jews back from being deported. And when that happens, his glory would fill the temple. So they set up these lights to uh, remember that. This is Hanukkah. Hanukkah means renewal or rededication. That's what it means. It usually occurs in uh, late November to late December, sometime in that time frame is when it starts. It's an eight-day, started, I think, this year, December 24th. It's an eight-day celebration uh, modeled after the Festival of Tabernacles, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks. Eight days of partying, dancing, celebration. Candles were lit the whole time, singing, making music. They would read what we call the Halal, the praise psalm, Psalm 113 to 118. It was a big party. To remember God answered our prayer, he restored the temple. Now, God hasn't come back yet, um, but, but he will. He will. This is his home. In Jewish history, as I mentioned, this came to be known as the Festival of Lights. The Israelites celebrated it to remember God's ongoing care of his temple. You see, the temple was a visible sign of God's presence. That's what the temple symbolized in every nation. That's how they conceived of their gods. The temple was a portal, if you will, between the heavenlies where the god or gods existed and earth where the mortals existed. The temple was that portal where they could connect with that, their god or gods or goddesses. So in Jewish history, the temple was a visible sign of God's presence. And the festival reminded the Jews of God's presence with them. He had not forgotten them. Because part of, uh, part of serving a bunch of gods is whoever's God is the strongest is obviously the best God, the one we should pay allegiance to. And so the way we know which God is the strongest is by who wins. <laughs> okay? So when they kick the Syrians out, obviously our God is stronger. It also was a, a festival that reminded the Jewish people of the apostasy of the Jews that led to the defilement of the temple in the first place. Remember, the whole reason they were kicked out is because they turned to idolatry and rejected God. So he kicked them out. Finally said, you've done it. You've crossed the line. We're not going back. Welcome to your new home. Kicked them out of the land. And then sometime later, they began to trickle back. He let them come back. And so they wanted to remember what had happened. So this festival summoned the people to remain steadfast in their commitment to God. This is a great festival, isn't it? I mean, these are good leaders that start to put this thing together to remind the people. And they said, never again. It was the never again festival. It's the festival by which they said, we will never walk away from the Lord again or disobey or rebel against him. That was the heart of Hanukkah. All right. That's the history behind Hanukkah. Now, in John chapter 10, this appears in the life of Jesus. Okay, John chapter 10, verse 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. That's the festival of Hanukkah. It was winter. John's letting us know, wants us to be clear which festival it is, because this is a festival that occurs in December, our December. Okay, so we're talking about Hanukkah. So Jesus walks into Jerusalem in the middle of Hanukkah. Okay, now we read together John 2, where Jesus said, tear down this temple in three days and I'll rebuild it. Okay. That becomes part of this, as we'll see in a minute. Now, I just gave you the whole history of Israel, and uh, at least a brief history of Israel, what happened with the temple. The Jews are very touchy about their temple because they'd already had it destroyed. So when Jesus walks on the scene and says, tear down this temple three days and I'll rebuild it, 
Okay, they get a little touchy about that. They're not very happy. In Matthew 26, this is one of the things they bring up. They charge him with sedition because uh, in his trial before his execution, he claimed he's going to tear down the temple. They didn't understand what a spiritual temple was. The only world they knew was a spirit, a physical one where they could touch the concrete, the bricks. And they were not happy about the fact that he started using language of temple destruction. That's not happy in their history. They've already been through that route. They don't want to go through it again. So Hanukkah here sets the background for one of Jesus' very short but key teachings. So I'm going to read it to you. This is John chapter 10, verse 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Which is really funny language. Because all the way through John, he's been telling them. I am the Messiah. In a few weeks, when we back up three months to the Festival of Tabernacles, you'll see there he was very clear. When he said to them, tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days, he's making a statement of deity. Okay, that's what he's making. So he's telling them all along. He's giving them the breadcrumbs, the clues. I am the Messiah. I am God in your midst. I am the Messiah. And they don't get it. So how long will you keep us in suspense? If you were the Messiah, just tell us. So Jesus answered, I did tell you. I already did, but you didn't believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Ouch. The reason why you don't hear me is because you don't belong to me. I belong to the one true God, Yahweh. He is my Father, but you don't belong to me. Hence, you don't belong to Him. Ouch. My sheep, they hear my voice. They listen to it. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Here it is, the key verse. I and the Father are one. All right, now remember, the moment Jesus walks into the temple and says, I am God, we know several things. The glory of the Lord just returned. Because Jesus is the image of God. So the glory of the Lord finally returned to the temple, number one. Number two, this temple is no longer needed. Because the glory of the Lord now appears in the form of a man. Not a temple structure. This temple is no longer needed. The temple structure was the heart of, Jer heart of Judaism. It was the heart of it. It's economic, it's theological, everything was done here. And so Jesus just said, we don't need this temple anymore. They got it. The very next verse, again, his Jew again, that means they tried it before. His Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. They got the message. Just as Israel celebrated God's presence in the festival of dedication or Hanukkah, Jesus now argues that there is another way that God is present with them. It's no longer through the temple. They can be sure they are in the Father's presence if they believe in Jesus, not the temple system. You with me? The temple was physical evidence of their belonging to God, but Jesus insists with this short little sermon that faith in his word ties them to the Father through him. 
Later on, he's going to say, no one can get to the Father except through me. He makes it really clear so they don't miss it. They got it. Pick up the stones. They got it. With this statement, I and the Father are one, Jesus is now saying the temple is no longer needed. This was the message of John 2, which we read together. Tear down this temple in three days, and I will rebuild it. The true temple. God's presence is now found in Jesus. Jesus becomes the visible presence of God in our lives. He is the temple. The temple is now standing in their midst. God's dwelling place among the people. And we just celebrated that. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Right? That's the message of Christmas. This is the heart of our belief as Christians. God with us. The temple system of no long, is no longer needed. They got it. All right. That's Hanukkah. Okay? So you understand Jesus' very rebellious little statement, I and the Father are one. This is no longer needed. Hanukkah has been completed in that the true temple now lives with us, Emmanuel. Peter and Paul pick up on this. You have, for example, in, in 1 Corinthians 3, I'm not going to read it, but you have, uh, you have Paul saying that our bodies, our temples, uh, our bodies represent the temple of the Holy Spirit. Bodies, plural, represent one temple. And then in chapter 6, our bodies are temples. So it starts with we are temples of the Holy Spirit because he lives within us. But then they go on to say, we together form the temple of the Holy Spirit. I am going to read to you what Peter said, 1 Peter 2, because Peter adds uh, some some interesting things. He said, first of all, uh, Peter 2, 1, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, long for, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in respect to your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Cultivate a love for the Lord, friends. That's what he's saying there. It's your responsibility. It's not going to happen by default. If you watch TV and do other things instead of pay attention to the Lord, you won't cultivate a heart for the Lord. You want to grow up in maturity in Christ? Cultivate a heart for Christ. Okay? If you've never read the Bible, start. Every one of your smartphones, you can download a program that will take care of it like that. You can read the Bible in one year. I read it every year. Start reading it. Get up in the morning and pray and say, God, I, I want to know you more. Help me. Okay? Take an interest in the things that we talk about. These things that we talk about up front, <clears throat> we talk about them for your benefit, not for ours. We bring them to you so that you will be very interested in drawing closer to the Lord. So take responsibility and start showing an interest. Take more responsibility. Show more of an interest. Try it. You've got nothing to lose. Okay? You've got plenty of time to read the Bible this year. We do, you're just starting. Okay? You can easily catch up. But he goes on. As you come to him, the living stone, this is Jesus, by the way, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual temple to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're being built into a temple. It's a living temple. Every time one of you turns to God in faith, we put another stone on the wall. And then we put another stone. So here's Matt Dayton's stone right here. Here's my stone. Here's Jill Sorensen's stone right here. Okay, here's Nancy's stone. I don't know when the temple is going to be built and completed. All I know is we're building it. The spiritual temple, which is God's dwelling place, is being built right now. 
They both use this image. You see, we are the new spiritual temple in Christ. So you have the physical temple. Then you have Jesus saying, I and the Father are one. This temple is no longer needed. The glory has returned. God is now present in his temple. Jesus is saying, me. And then Jesus introduces us to the Lord, and this temple starts to grow. This new temple gets bigger and bigger. All right, now, I mentioned at the beginning, how do you communicate, how does God help us understand true spiritual reality? That's by the language of the Bible. So what does it mean for us to be the temple? Do we look at a Jewish, I mean, a Hindu temple to figure it out? Not in your life. Do we look at a Buddhist temple? No. We go back and look at the Jewish temple, and we begin to see what life should be like in the church. So, for example, here is where we talk about truth. Back in the Jewish temple, the scribes and the Pharisees taught the way of God to the people. All right? When the world looks at us, what do they see? Do they see us talking about truth? Things that are important? Or do they see us grumbling, complaining, fighting? What do they see? When they look at us. Because you see, when we start talking about truth, which is what we do at Iron Hour and other ministries, truth begins to transform the way we think. So we get in a fight. Right now in our country, we have a big controversy over gay marriage. Forget gay marriage. Forget it. Let's worry about the 50% of our, of our marriages in our church right here that are failing. Let's worry about that. Truth, as we enter into a discussion on truth, guess what? Your marriages should change. They should. That's far more destructive, far more destructive than the whole question of gay marriage is marriage, marital failure. Because we model the culture at 50%. That's what our church is. That's a bigger issue. Both Jesus and Paul claim that marriage is your first testimony of your belief in the one true God. And if it fails, you shot yourself in the foot right away. So if our church is failing in this area, then our basic testimony is failing. You see, there is no other way to communicate about this one true God to the broken world. There is no other way. There's only one option, looking at us. There's no billboard out there. There's no plane flying overhead with a banner, hey, I'm the one true God, I'm alive. There's no flashing lights. It's real simple. It's us. We are the only example that God uses to reflect his glory. And if we can't get our act together, guess what? Why would they be interested in us? So do they see us engaging in meaningful, life-giving conversation about truth? That's just one example. What about this one over here? This is where the poor could come and have their needs met. You have the temple treasury. All right, when the world looks at us, do they see the poor coming and us caring for them? As a church, do they see that? If we leave it to the government, we don't care. Why would they want to be part of us? We should be the leaders, the, the leaders in caring for the uh, poor, the downtrodden, the broken. And this is a serious question that you need to wrestle with. Do you really want people that aren't like us in our church? Do you want people that are struggling with drug addicts and alcoholism? Do you want those people coming to our church? Because our church is going to change more than it's ever changed, if, if that's the case. I do. But you're going to be very uncomfortable because it gets messy really fast. Or what about this? This is where all the great festivals occurred, all the dancing, celebration, parties, all of that. 
when the world looks at us, do they see us as the happiest people on the planet? Or do they see us grumbling and complaining? Do they see us handling the stresses of life well? We're working with each other and we're celebrating who God is. Or do they see us depressed, discouraged, downtrodden? What do they see? One of my friends who has stage four cancer, she's young, two young boys. And she told me, she said, the best gift I can give my two boys is genuine belief in Jesus. Oh, I could get angry and depressed. That's being human. But that's being broken human. So when they look at us as a spiritual temple, do they see us jumping up and down? We know the one true God. We know how to handle stress. We know how to handle discouragement. We know how to handle all that. Or do they see us struggling and failing? There is no other prop that God's going to use. There's no other example. This is it. We are it. So what does Paul say in Ephesians 3? To God be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ. There's no banner out there to tell them about God. If we don't have our act together, guess what? They'll never come. We are, the, we are God's testimony to the world. Father, thank you. Thank you for, as Mark likes to say, using us knuckleheads. I still don't get it, to be honest with you, but yet you chose to do that. Thank you for that. Thank you that you use us and you show us grace. You're merciful to us. You love us. You watch over us. You protect us. Thank you, Lord, that you, uh, that you know how to work in our midst and you know how to use us in the lives of people. Father, help us to be a people that represents the temple well, the true meaning of Hanukkah, that your glory has returned, that you are here, and that you desire so much for these broken people around us to come to know you, for marriages to be healed, Lord, for families to be restored, Lord, for people with addictions to overcome their addictions and turn to you and crave you more than they do their addiction. Those are the things that you desire. Help us to be that type of people, Lord, that type of church, that type of temple to the world around us. In your son's name we pray, amen. Gonna ask the ushers to come forward. Thank you for the Christmas season and Christmas Eve, making it a wonderful experience. Thank you for your generosity, because you're the ones that are paying for all this, so we're grateful for that. So thanks for being generous.
As we prepare to celebrate communion, I'd like to invite the, those that want to serve to come on up and prepare us with the, the cup and the bread. You know, we talked during the uh, Advent season that um, communion represents something tragic as well as glorious. It's tragic in that God had to step down into a desert. That's just another metaphor for our lives. We all live in the desert. We don't know what it's like not to live in the desert, honestly. That's the world we live in. And that's the world he stepped into, that broken world. And so it represents something very tragic to us, but at the same time filled with hope. So when Jesus said, I'm going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days, this is what communion is about. It's about the destruction of the temple. This is a story of Hanukkah, rebuilding the true temple. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said this is my body which is given for you all of you i remembered you you remember me i didn't forget you i came back so don't forget me so this is his death this is the tearing down of the temple and what came because we tore down the temple forgiveness forgiveness after supper he took the cup and he said this cup represents the new covenant in my blood I remembered you. I didn't forget, so you remember me. Do this in remembrance of me. What is this? This is the shedding of blood. This is the tearing down of the temple. So that when he's raised three days later, there's a new temple. And it brings a new covenant, a new way of living. That is the, that's the rebuilding of the temple. The new covenant is the temple. It's the spirit bringing life to dry bones. It's the spirit bringing cleansing water. It's the creation of the new temple. Tear this down in three days, I'll rebuild it. His death was a tearing down, bringing the new covenant. Forgiveness is the rebuilding of the new temple. That's us, friends. That's us. How did God decide to fill the earth with his glory? Through us. Father, thank you for, for doing the impossible, crazy thing, filling the earth with your glory by indwelling us. Thanks for sending your son Jesus to die for us. Jesus, thanks for walking that lonely, dry road through the desert. Pain, sorrow, mocking, shame. All just to tear down the temple, the earthly temple, and build a new one. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Come and celebrate communion and stop and pray with one of us.